Good morning, everybody. Welcome to South Valley. My name's Sam. I'm really excited to share with you guys from the book of Isaiah today. We're in our 10th week of our series, Isaiah, Prophet of Doom, a great series title for the Christmas season. And we're, uh, I'm excited today in particular to share with you um, from what I believe is probably the most significant and certainly the most famous passage in the entire book. Um, but before we get there, we got some other stuff to talk about. I want to talk to you guys um, as we get my slideshow going. Yeah, there we go. I almost could have gotten away without saying anything, man. I want to talk to you guys about the ideas of tension and resolution. This is something that human beings are just kind of intuitively connected with. If you look at any of our kind of entertainment mediums, we have this concept of, of tension that builds up and then a resolve that makes us feel better at the end. You guys kind of know what I'm talking about? One of the most clear ways we can demonstrate this is with music. That's why Drew's up here, if you were wondering. He's not going to like accompany me with beautiful Christmas songs halfway through the sermon. As nice as that would be. You want, you want that, Lisa? Okay, Drew, could you just sing some Christmas songs? No, so... Tension in music, whether you're a musician or not, one of the ways that songs hook you in is by building up tension using something that, that is frequently called minor chords. There's other chords that have tension too, but minor chords are the ones that, that kind of build up a sense of tension in you. Drew, give us a minor chord. You guys feel the tension? You feel that? Give us a little more tension though. Yeah. You feel that? And so just when the tension and discomfort is building to the, the highest point you can handle, you get resolve. Ah, oh. Doesn't that feel great? Let's give, it, give us some tension one more time. All the tension. Yeah, and then resolve. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Daller. Wow, that was a... That was more than a smattering. That was a generous applause you just got. Drew has been working on those two chords for weeks. So the, the applause is greatly appreciated. He's never played piano. That was the <laughs> Tension and resolve. It's in music, but it's not just in music. And it's not just something that you feel in that sort of a way. It's actually built into the narrative structure of pretty much all storytelling also. Stories are designed around the building up of tension and then a resolution that satisfies and relieves you. So every book you read, every TV show you watch, every movie you see has these devices built into them. And I was originally going to talk about Star Wars, and you know that scene at the very end when, I'm just kidding, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I was going to talk though about Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something like that, but I decided instead that I wanted to in, you know, kind of explain the idea of tension and resolution using Greg Quirk's favorite genre of movies, the romantic comedy. Now, I don't know why you guys are laughing. That's messed up. He loves them. <laughs> romantic comedies are actually the best example of tension and resolution because when you watch them, love them or hate them, we've all seen them, and when you watch them, you know within 10 minutes who she's going to end up with, right? But you also know it's not going to happen right away. I mean, that would be a very, very boring movie if the girl met a guy who she's super compatible with and everything went really well and they got married and lived happily ever after. It's a boring movie, right? So instead, she has to fall in love with the wrong guy. No. He's a jerk. He's not right for her. And her family you know, gets conflict involved, and the workplace is going badly, and tension is rising and rising. And all the while, she's not even noticing the handsome UPS driver making deliveries to her cupcake shop. <laughs> and just to be clear, if that's not already a movie, I got dibs. I'm going to get rich. I'm making it. And so you get this tension that builds up until finally, in the satisfying ending, she 
leaves the jerk at the altar and goes chasing after the UPS truck in her wedding dress. That's the cover of the movie, just to be clear. Wedding dress lady chasing after UPS truck. And you get that resolution. Now, the, the reason I think we connect to these types of stories and, and these, I, this feeling of tension and then the resolution that makes us feel better is because all of us in our lives are constantly experiencing this on small levels and big levels. We have tension in our relationships, in our work, in our life in general. Sometimes we get little resolutions to them, but constantly we are facing this kind of overwhelming existential tension about life and death and God, and, and how does this all end? How does this all work? So we're drawn to stories that build up tension and then relieve it for us. Now, in the story of the Bible, there is a massive tension that begins right in chapter 3, and we've talked about it a lot throughout this series. But in chapter 3, God is with humanity in the garden. Adam and Eve are there, and everything is perfect. But then a serpent whispers into the ear of Eve, and they choose to reject God's will and rebel. And sin and devastation enter into creation. The reason this creates tension is because what we know about God from the Bible is that he is a God of love who wants to have relationship with these people. He wants to be in relationship with them, but he's also a God of justice, and their sin and their rebellion inherently deserves punishment and creates a separation between God and man. And that tension persists all the way through the Old Testament. And in books like Leviticus, you get a look at a system that God designed for the people of Israel that was meant to kind of temporarily bring resolution to that tension. And if you've read the entire Bible ever, you know the parts I'm talking about with the sacrificial system, right? Where you get like lists and lists of the different animals and grains and oils and stuff that are supposed to be brought. Tons of different sacrifices for different purposes. But one of them, this is, this is an oversimplification of it, but one of them involved the sacrificer bringing a, an animal, picture a lamb, from his flock. And it had to be a perfect, unblemished lamb with nothing wrong with it. And they would bring it to the temple, and the person would lay his hands on the head of that animal and symbolically transfer his guilt to it. And the animal would then die instead of him. The animal would receive the punishment deserved by the person. It would make atonement for him. This kind of, the sacrifice I'm describing is outlined in Leviticus 1, if you want to go read it. If you're having trouble falling asleep tonight, you can keep reading the rest of that book. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a horrible thing to say. Now, these sacrifices did not work permanently. The sacrifice uh, that they, would made, they had to make them over and over and over again because their hearts didn't actually change. They continued sinning. They continued making mistakes. They continued kind of building up guilt within themselves. And so over and over, they had to make sacrifices like this. It was a temporary, small picture of resolution to the tension between God and man. Now, in the book of Isaiah, as we've been looking at, and for those of you who have been here from the beginning, you've seen this, one of the, another layer of tension that gets added is that God is no longer satisfied with Israel's sacrifices. You remember that from earlier in the series? God says, your sacrifices that you're making, your kind of religious observances, they aren't working for me anymore. Why? Because you're not doing the stuff you're supposed to do. You do all these religious sacrifices, but you don't have righteousness and justice you don't care for the oppressed or the downtrodden. You don't care for the orphan, the widow, the poor and oppressed. And so when you do these religious activities, I'm not having it. It's not working. 
So the tension between God and man throughout the book of Isaiah is raising even higher. Now, as we've been going through this, and again, if you've been here from the beginning, especially if you've been doing the reading plan, you've seen this, but we have seen just an incredible number of themes exploding out of the scroll of Isaiah. You have the idea of Yahweh, this personal God of Israel, who has all of these things that he wants to do with creation. He wants to bring in the nations. He wants to be in relationship with Israel. He wants to reconcile creation to himself. And he has this people group, the nation of Israel, that he wants to use to do that. How is that going so far in the book of Isaiah? Is Israel doing a good job? No. Israel's doing a terrible job, and God's telling them that over and over again. But it's not just a problem with Israel. The nations, all the nations of earth, have a problem with God as well. God says, you guys are arrogant. You've raised yourself up to the place of God. You act like you are gods yourselves, and that deserves punishment also. He says he's going to reduce Israel down to a stump, a remnant. And from that burned down stump, a branch is going to suddenly emerge. It's going to pop up and start to grow. And then as Isaiah's thought surrounding this branch character continues to develop, what we see is that this character is actually a leader of Israel. He's a king. For a second, it looks like it might be Ahaz, but he fails. Then for a second, it looks like it might be Hezekiah. In fact, he's really promising. Remember? If you remember from the seventh week of the series. But he also fails. So we're still waiting for him. And over all of this, towards the end of the book, when we enter the the chapters 40, 42, 43, the theme of the servant suddenly starts to kind of build up and, and overcome all of these other themes. Now, when I think about all these different themes in Isaiah and this, all these different images that overlap and interact with each other, the image that came to mind is a kaleidoscope. You guys remember kaleidoscopes? Where you look through them and you turn it and you see all the different shapes and colors kind of twist and interact with each other and you can tell there's some kind of a meaning behind it, there's some kind of a pattern, but you can't quite lock on to what it is. That's what the themes in Isaiah so far are like. If you're tracking with them, you can see, man, there's a logic behind this but I can't quite wrap my brain around it. Now today, God willing, we're going to see some resolution to all of that tension. We're going to see how all these pieces of the kaleidoscope suddenly fit together. We've got to do some work to get there. Now I want to encourage you, as we trace this theme of the servant through the 40s of Isaiah, allow yourself to feel the tension, the dissonance, because there's a major chord coming in chapter 53 that we're going to get to. It's a chapter that many of us who are Christians are really familiar with, but I just want to encourage you, if you hear it by itself, you get to hear a nice, pretty, beautiful major chord, and that's great. But what we want to do today is allow Isaiah to play the minor chords first. You know what I'm saying? To feel the tension and the difficulty that's in this theme that leads up to that resounding, resolving major chord. So stick with me. It's complicated. It's complicated on purpose, and we're going to go quick. Okay, this is the theme of the servant that suddenly starts to overwhelm all of the other themes. Isaiah 41, God says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Jacob is just another way of saying Israel. The offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So relatively simple so far. This is not a trick question. Who is the servant right now? Israel, right? Israel is the servant. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. 
Now, this is already a little bit confusing, and there's already a little bit of tension, because if, if you're tracking through all of Isaiah, the servant character has been represented a few different ways already. He's been Isaiah. At one point, it's even a foreign king named Cyrus. But here it's very clear, the servant is Israel. What's the servant supposed to do? I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. It's a beautiful calling. It says the servant's job is to open blind eyes. It's a covenant for all the peoples. God wants to open the eyes of the blind nations, lead them out of prison, lead them out of captivity, and he says he wants to use Israel to do it. And that's a particularly beautiful image because earlier in the book of Isaiah, we heard that even though Isaiah is going to preach the truth to Israel, are they going to listen to him? Are they going to be able to hear him? No. If you remember, he says they're going to be deaf. Their ears are going to be closed to you. Here he says the job of the servant is to open blind eyes and lead people out of the dungeon. Now, this is where the tension suddenly ramps up a notch. Later in that exact same chapter, God says this, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? So what's the job of the servant Israel? Open blind eyes. Who does God say is the blindest of all of them? His servant. You feel that tension? That's a minor chord. Wait, what? The servant's the one who's supposed to open blind eyes, but the servant himself is blind. This is a profound tension in the story. And so God suddenly kind of shifts gears and starts to talk about how he's going to reconcile this. He says, I, this is God talking, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And that's a beautiful promise, but even that comes with some tension, right? Because God is a God of justice. And all throughout the book of Isaiah so far, he's been talking about how sin and rebellion require punishment. And now he's saying, I'm not even going to remember your sins. I'm going to blot out your transgressions. How can he possibly do this? Later he says, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So Israel's blind, but God says, I'm going to save them myself. And then he expands the language and says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We're going to look more at that last verse in the final week of the series on the 31st. But for now what you need to see here is God saying, Israel's supposed to go to the nations, but they're disqualified from the job, so I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to rescue Israel. I'm going to rescue the nations. Watch this next layer of just absolute craziness. This comes later. Now the servant is speaking, and he says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Israel's still the servant. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The servant, Israel, is called to bring back 
Israel to God. Do you feel the tension in this? The servant is Israel, but the servant is blind. So God is going to save Israel and all of the nations. But here later, again, the servant is Israel, and now it's his job is to save Israel. And then in the very next verse, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's like we've gone full circle again, and the servant is again called to be a light to all the nations. It's incredibly tense, incredibly unusual, and it's hard to see how this is going to be reconciled. Now, after this, the voice of the servant changes, and it suddenly starts talking in first person. Now the servant is a a single voice speaking for himself. And he starts to talk about how even though the rest of Israel is deaf, he says, I can hear, I listen to God, and I obey. And he says, I'm willing to obey even if it means suffering. He says things like, I give my back to those who strike. I give my cheek to those who pull out the beard, which is a particularly terrifying image for people like me, right? He says, I'm willing to suffer if that's what God wants me to do. And the reason he's willing to do that is because he says that he knows God is with him, that God will vindicate him, that he's not going to have to do this alone. This leads right up to the end of chapter 52. And at this point, I just want to invite you, along with me, to put yourself in the correct place in this story. It's really easy to kind of hear all of this and to read this book and have Israel as the bad guy. That Israel had this great job and they messed it all up. Now they're blind and they can't hear. They're not doing what God wants them to do. So God's going to punish them and save them and use them still to reach the nations. What you need to know is that Isaiah has made it crystal clear throughout this entire book, that God's problem is not just with Israel. God has a problem with all the nations of earth and every single human individual in them. All have rebelled against him. And God's made it crystal clear that that rebellion deserves punishment. Evil, as Isaiah describes it, is not something that's out there that we need to shelter ourselves from. Evil is something that's inside each one of us and that we are actively putting out into the world. All of us are are born into this. Again, this is clearly the way Isaiah describes it. But then after that, it it continues in this horrible cycle. It's kind of like currency. That's how I was thinking about it this week. We receive evil. Evil acts are done to us. We take them in. We kind of soak them up and fill ourselves up with them. And then we spend them back out. There are super obvious examples of this, like the guy who gets chewed out at work, and so he gets in his car, and he's driving home just full of anger, and when he gets back, who does he take that anger out on? His wife, his kids, his animals. But there are subtle examples of this that happen to all of us. We've all been on both sides of them. You receive evil, you take it in, you fill up with it, and you spend it back out. The evil that's in the world is something that we are active participants in from the day we're born. We don't just sit back and watch it happen. We buy it, sell it, and create it and put it out. So the great tension between God and man is a tension between God and me and God and you. And so as that kind of chaos of of thematic uncertainty builds up to a crescendo in Isaiah 52, all of a sudden we hit the most famous section in this entire book. 
and we're going to read it in its entirety. We're going to do that for a specific reason. Isaac talked last week about how for most of Christian history, and even before that in Jewish history, the people of God heard the scriptures read out loud. Most people couldn't read. Most people didn't have access to like 20 different translations of the Bible. So you went and you heard it read. And it's a beautiful medium for scripture that we're not used to. So today we're going to read this chapter in its entirety. And I want to encourage you with this before we read it. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard this before. Your natural instinct is going to be to think of Jesus and look backwards to this passage. What I want you to try your hardest to do is the same thing I'm going to try to do. Put yourselves instead in the position of Isaiah's audience and look forward to this chapter. You see the difference? Don't think first of Jesus and look back at how this is pointing to him. Put yourself in the position of Isaiah's audience who have heard all of these different themes throughout this whole book and all of these different images of God and humanity and how is this possibly going to get solved? How is this going to get reconciled? And look forward at this as the bizarre, unexpected, unbelievable resolution to the tension. So I'm going to ask Grace Golan to come up and read for us. And as she reads... I invite you to close your eyes, if that helps, and hear this fresh. It's a longer chapter, it's a longer section than we're used to hearing read all the way through. Force yourself as, as much as you can to stay focused on it and imagine that you are Isaiah's original audience waiting to hear how this crazy thing gets resolved. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God, of the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thanks, Gracie. Now, I hope you hear in that chapter all these strands of thought that Isaiah has been developing come together. This is a moment where I believe if you've been reading and if you've been consistent, you get an incredible reward for it. Because the number of things that Isaiah has set up earlier in the book that come together in this moment are absolutely unbelievable. Let's just look briefly at what's happening here. God says his servant will be high and lifted up. There are two places in Isaiah where this phrase in Hebrew has been used already. The first one is Isaiah chapter 2, when it talks about how the city Zion is going to be high and lifted up, and all the nations are going to stream into it. It's an incredible moment. And then the second one is in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees a vision of God himself seated on a throne in the temple, and he says he is high and lifted up. It's hard to get more dramatically exalted language than this. And now it's applied to the servant. But even though he's high and lifted up in this kind of royal way, his appearance is horrifically marred, and it says he's going to sprinkle many nations. If you're a Jewish listener and you hear that idea, what you're picturing is the priest sprinkling the blood of the sacrificed lamb throughout the temple to represent the purification of the land. Next, he says that he grew up like a young plant. What does this make you think if you're, if you're in Isaiah? It's the branch. The branch that's going to spring up out of that ruined stump of Israel and grow into a king. Like a root out of dry ground. And this is the high point of the whole section. All of this language in these three verses is language of substitution and sacrifice. The servant carries the grief and sorrow. He takes the smiting and affliction, the piercing, crushing, punishing wounds that are deserved by everyone else. Because everyone, all of us, we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. And on the servant, all of that iniquity gets laid. It's like the, the collective hands of humanity are placed on the head of this one lamb, and their guilt is transferred to him. And just in case you think I'm like over pushing the sacrificial lamb stuff from the Old Testament in this section, in the very next section he says, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter. And these two lines at the bottom are incredibly important. He had done no violence and there's no deceit in his mouth. This lamb, just like the sacrifice has to be, is spotless unblemished, perfectly clean, and he carries on himself all of the weight of the iniquity of everybody else. But then there's a shock at the end, because he's alive again, even though he just died with the iniquity of his people. It says he's, he sees his offspring, another incredibly significant word in this book, and prolongs his days. He sees and is satisfied. So the righteous one, the servant, the ultimate final representation of the servant 
makes many to be accounted righteousness, to be accounted righteous, rather, and bears their iniquities. The servant, who has been all of these different things throughout Isaiah, suddenly comes together into one image of a righteous, lifted up, exalted servant who suffers even though he had done nothing wrong. If you are Isaiah's original audience, this is a shocking and bizarre conclusion to the whole narrative of the servant. And the Jewish people go on for for the next few hundred years and and come up with all kinds of different interpretations for how this is gonna work. Maybe there's two different people. One's a king and one's gonna suffer and die. All kinds of different ideas we don't have time to talk about. But what we know is that all of these themes throughout Isaiah suddenly come together into one picture And because we live on the other side of the most important thing that ever happened in human history, we know who this is about. Who is it? Jesus. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knows when he sees Jesus. John the Baptist, by the way, is himself a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. We saw that a few weeks ago. And when he sees Jesus, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the ultimate servant who is born to die with the sins of humanity on his back. So Jesus lives his life in this incredibly unique way. He teaches in the Sermon on the Mount the system for his people to follow whereby they take in sin but don't pay it back out. Have you ever noticed that about the Sermon on the Mount? You hit me, let him hit you again. If they take something from you, let him have it. Receive evil, soak it up, but don't pay it back out. That's why it sounds so impossible when you read that section because it's talking about something that humanity has never, ever done. Jesus does it. He's tempted by Satan himself. We talked about that a few weeks ago also. The day star from Isaiah chapter 14 comes to Jesus and tempts him with all the stuff that the rest of humanity has always fallen for. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to allow Babylon to influence the way I live. I'm not going to fight with Babylon's weapons. And so when Jesus goes to the cross to die, he goes, leaving the accuser nothing with which to accuse him. collective hands of humanity, placing all of their guilt and sin and shame upon the one person in human history who does not deserve to die. And he absorbs all of human evil and human hatred onto himself and pays none of it back out. That's why he dies blessing his enemies, literally. And here's the logic of the gospel. This is the incredible truth of the gospel. If you place your faith in Jesus, your sins will have died with him at the cross. He takes it on himself and dies with it, like the ultimate final sacrificial lamb. The author of Hebrews would later say that unlike the other high priests, this one can make a sacrifice once and for all that never has to be repeated like the other ones. And then the most beautiful, resounding major chord in the history of humanity Three days later, Jesus raises from the dead and lives forever. And so again, the logic of the gospel is that if you place your faith and trust 
in the person and work of Jesus, your sins will have died with him at the cross and you will share in his resurrection and live with him forever because he dies for the sins of the world. It's an unbelievable and unexpected end to the story. Now, here's how Paul articulates it later in the New Testament. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I wish we had time to unpack this crazy set of verses in their entirety. But what he's saying is Jesus does not die for the cleaned up. He doesn't just die for those who are making the best, strongest effort at living a good life. He dies for the ungodly while they're ungodly. It's the picture of Isaiah 53, a people who have been shown through chapter after chapter of Isaiah to be deserving of punishment. The servant takes it on himself while they deserve it, and he takes it instead. So Paul says, your sin can die with Jesus, and you can live in his resurrection. Now, I'm going to ask you a question this morning, and I honestly believe this is the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. Do you believe that? Awesome. Glad to hear that. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible says he did, and that he is alive today and forever? Now there's, awesome, wow, that's cool to hear. It's technically a rhetorical question, but I enjoyed that, thanks. <laughs> now, there's three kind of broad ways that we can answer this, and so I want to speak to, to three different categories of people real quick. The first one is the category of person who, who hears this question and says, no, no, I don't believe that, I'm not convinced. I just want you to know that you are so welcome in this place if you say no to this question. The last thing I want is for you to go, well, I guess this, this is just a church for people who already believe all this stuff. If you don't believe this, please continue coming. Talk to us, engage with us, get in a small group, read the Bible, explore the answers to these questions. If this is true, then it can bear up under your scrutiny, okay? And we don't want blind faith. Don't come to Jesus just because you feel bad. Explore this. Ask questions. If you answer no today, please continue coming. Now, the second category of person is the person who says yes to this question, but if you're honest with yourself, you're sort of still on the bench, so to speak. You know what I mean by that? You haven't really gotten in the game. Maybe you come to church every once in a while, but other than that, your life is more or less unchanged. And to you, I just want to say, if this is true, then it is without question the most important thing that has ever happened in all of human history, and it demands that you change your life as a result. It just does. This either didn't happen and it doesn't matter at all, or it did happen and everything else about us has to change. 
So it's not, in my opinion, a viable option to go, okay, I believe that, pretty sure that's going to get me to heaven, so every once in a while I'll go sing songs, but I'm just going to kind of wait and camp out until I die and go to heaven. This news of the life, death, and resurrection and the conquering of Satan, sin, and death demands that we submit everything to Jesus, and none of us is doing that perfectly all at once. It's an invitation for you to join in that process, to start today. If you feel like, man, I've been sitting on the bench even though I believe this, join us in the process of taking baby steps towards greater and greater obedience to Jesus, greater and greater imitation of Jesus. Jesus calls us to go out and imitate him, to be people who can absorb sin and evil and not pay it back out. Paul says we have been reconciled in order that we may go and reconcile. There's a job for you to do. There's a mission for us. And I just want to invite you to join us as we attempt imperfectly to do that. And the third category of person is, is me. And I know there are other people like me in the room who, um, man, I, I believe this. I really do. I'm not saying I never have doubts or I never have questions, but, but I genuinely believe that this all really happened, that he is who he said he is. And I, I've seen that news, I've seen that event transform me over time. I really have. But if I'm honest with you guys, I don't always feel it. Like I intellectually know that Jesus has saved me, that my sin is dead at the cross, but I still feel the weight of it. And I know there are a lot of you who feel that way also. And so I want to encourage you with some words from Paul. And these are words that I think we need to just have in our minds constantly. We need to preach this to ourselves every day. This is an incredibly unique thing in the New Testament. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the image of your sins dying with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Look at this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm very comfortable talking about like the cosmic existential effects of the gospel, like how Jesus is reconciling all things back to himself. Man, I have a really hard time with that last line, though. Other religions will have gods who in many ways seem like they kind of line up with our God, like he's all-powerful, he's almighty, he knows everything. You will not find another religion that talks about God loving me. Dying for me. So Christians, I hope you feel that today. We need to tell ourselves this on a regular basis. Because if you're like me, man, your flesh is telling you that you are no good, you are undeserving of God's love, and Paul says, yes, you are. But he died for you anyway. For you. Not just for all humanity, that too. But for you. If you're in Christ, the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. Remind yourself of that. I want to close with this. And prayer team, you guys can come forward. Any uh, prayer counselors who are here this morning. If you answered no, but you feel like maybe it's time to answer yes, um, if you feel like, you know what, I haven't believed in God, I haven't been convinced of this, but I know that I have built up a whole lot of tension, a whole lot of iniquity and, and rebellion against God, and man, I want 
to have my sin nailed to the cross with Jesus so that I can come alive in his resurrection and live forever. If that's you today, I just want to invite you to join the family of God. The forgiveness of Jesus is available to you right now today. And so I want to do something that I did in the Hollister campus. It's super weird. It's like a reverse altar call. (laughs) Um, If you're in here today, please don't feel any kind of pressure or weirdness about this. If you are here today and you would be comfortable with someone coming up to you and saying, I want to follow Jesus, can you tell me how? If you would be comfortable answering that question, could you raise your hand? Man, that's cool to see. If today you need Jesus and you want to come to him, you want to repent and put aside the life you have been living and come and follow the king, talk to one of those people who who you just saw their hands raised, or you can talk to one of our prayer counselors who are wearing amazingly matching outfits today, by the way. They call each other. There's an email that goes out. Um, Or talk to me, or talk to Kevin, or Isaac, or Greg, but talk to someone. You can go from being an enemy of God to a son or daughter of God today, and you don't have to do anything to save yourself. The work was done 2,000 years ago at the cross. Now next week, Isaac on Christmas Eve is going to talk about some of the grand and cosmic effects of the gospel on Satan and on death, but today I hope you know that your sins can be forgiven. And Christians, I hope you know that your sins have been forgiven. A just God found an incredibly selfless way to redeem and reconcile us. That's what we're celebrating this season. Let's pray. Father, you know the, the guilt that still hits me, that still haunts me. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have given me words like what Paul said to remind me that the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me, that I am forgiven. And Father, I pray that today, no matter how every single person in this room answered the question of whether or not they believe, God, I pray that all of us would take steps closer to you today, that those who have known you for decades would be drawn more and more to submit more of themselves to you, that those who who maybe believe in you but haven't gotten in the game yet, that they would be called into your mission, that they would see that they have been saved for a purpose, that the kingdom of God begins now, not when they die. And Lord, especially for those who don't know you, who may be considering whether to follow you today, Lord, I pray that you would call and that they would answer. We want to see this family grow. We want to see your gospel spread, the good news of your victory over Satan, sin, and death that you accomplished in your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, make us more like you, and especially in this season as we celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus, I pray that we would remember that he was born to make a sacrifice that would sprinkle nations and bring many to glorious forgiveness by his obedient sacrifice and willingness to suffer on our behalf. We love that suffering servant. Thank you that we can know who he is. You are a good God and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you need prayer, please come and uh, receive prayer from brothers and sisters up here.